G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Well, some significant developments that many Christians will shudder with dismay when you hear of these developments in Europe that have the potential to lead to a Muslim-Christian war. Turkey's authoritarian president, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, has strongly criticised Austria's recent decision to close mosques and expel Turkish-funded imams, calling the move anti-Islamic. Now, President Erdogan has made a speech in Istanbul, in which he seemed to threaten severe reprisals. He suggested the moves by the Austrian Prime Minister, Sebastian Kurz, are leading the world towards a war between the cross and the crescent. Now, in Austria, the expulsion of up to 60 Turkish-funded imams and their families could lead to up to seven mosques having to close as part of a crackdown on what the Austrian government has termed political Islam. Well, our special guest today on the phone from the United States is Dr. Camille Majdali, who leads Teach All Nations. He's been monitoring these developments in Turkey. A special welcome back to 2020 to you, Camille. Thanks, Neil. Nice to talk to you again. And Camille, before we get into this really hot topic and important topic to talk about, uh, you're getting ready for the Understanding the Times tour. You're on your way to Australia very shortly. The tour kicks off in August, and I know that many listeners right around Australia, knowing that you're coming to their town, will be very excited about that. But uh, all your preparations, are they on track? Yes, they are. I'm doing a dry run of the message that will be given in Australia here in the United States. So uh, they're, they're basically, it's the calisthenics at the moment before we have the, the full workout uh, starting in August in Melbourne. What is the title of your Understanding the Times Tour message this time? As you say, it's, uh, okay. you're getting it all together. Is there a final working title? Yes, the, the working title is The Trump Declaration, Jerusalem, Jihad, and the coming of Jesus. It's really about Jerusalem and some of the amazing and fascinating developments that have happened there, trying to give our listeners insight beyond the headlines, because once you understand a problem, you're halfway towards the solution. And then, of course, looking at Bible prophecy in a very, I believe, balanced way to help encourage people to invest in their spiritual lives, because ultimately that's the most wonderful security you can have for your future is putting God first. Well, the fact that you monitor the trends that are going on around the world uh, makes it an incredibly important opportunity for listeners when you are coming to their city or town uh, to be able to uh, get into an audience and hear the uh, insights that you'll be able to deliver. And uh, I'll encourage listeners that you'll be able to check on the dates for the Understanding the Times tour uh, on the Vision website, vision.org.au. And, of course, then there's Teach All Nations website, 
tan.org.au, tan.org.au. Camille, let's get into our conversation. Uh, In the introduction, I explained generally what has been happening. And when we talk about the idea of a Muslim-Christian war, always very cautious uh, with those sorts of headlines because not wanting to incite fear, but there is a sense in which uh, these are the sorts of things that do cause you to stand up and pay attention because those sorts of threats don't come lightly when they come from the lips of world leaders. And this is the sort of thing that's coming from the lips of the president of Turkey. What are your thoughts on the idea of even talking about a Muslim-Christian war? Right. Well, there's all kinds of thoughts that come to mind. Historically... There have been many Muslim-Christian wars, and particularly what I'm thinking of is the Byzantine Empire that was ruled from Constantinople, now called Istanbul. That, that was a particularly intractable kind of, It was going on for centuries and centuries. Less so uh, in Europe, although there, has been, there have been conflicts even in Europe, particularly in Vienna. See, it's no coincidence that we're talking about the Austrian Chancellor... <laughs> and the, the, how should we say, the strained relationship between him and Turkey. I personally think that the Austrians have not forgotten the siege of Vienna in 1683. That has been one of the most harrowing, blood-filled sieges of all of European history. When the Ottomans, 130,000 of them, came and besieged the Austrian capital, which was not just the capital of Austria it was the Holy Roman Empire. It was the leader of Central Europe, and basically Vienna hung by a thread until the Polish king Jan Sobieski rescued them on September 11th. Interesting coincidence, September 11th, 1683, and basically he routed the Turkish troops. It was it was a miracle of biblical proportions. It, Vienna should have fallen, and Central Europe taken over by the Turks, but it didn't happen. It just didn't happen, and that was the last major invasion. Also, not counting the any kind of Muslim-Christian battles when they took over North Africa. People forget North Africa was Christian until the 7th century, and the conquering armies of Islam came and took over. So it's not new to talk about this, but it hasn't been something we've had for a while, at least not in the overt sense, certainly not with nation-states that are Muslim. The war on terror is something else, of course, so, yeah, talk about it is, well, let's put it this way, not the most helpful thing, but we do need some context. And the fact that it's Austria and the capital is Vienna, and they had a siege over 330-some years ago, that they haven't forgotten. So this brings back memories that probably would be best to be left lying still. Well, this is a very interesting point you raise here, and I'll get your comment on it, because in the Australian mindset, we have this general idea of forgiving, forgetting, letting bygones be bygones. Those things that happened in the past, we're happy to move on. I mean, just over the last hundred years, most Australians have moved on from their ill feeling toward the Japanese uh, or uh, the Germans, uh, because, you know, in World War Two we were at war. World War One, we were at war, and World War Two. 
But there is something different about what it appears to be in the Muslim mindset. And you've touched on something very important here. I'll get your thoughts on the idea that memories don't fade, that revenge, even after things that happened hundreds of years ago, are still fresh in the minds of leaders uh, in some parts of the world. And we're talking about uh, President Erdogan. And, of course, we can take that back to uh, First World War Two. even our diggers landing on the shores of Gallipoli. And uh, let's not get into a, a, a major sidetrack on our conversation. But this idea that memories don't fade easily, what are your thoughts about some world leaders and, and in fact, their religious motivation for that? Okay, good question, Neil. And I'll keep it rather generic because I think I need to. First of all, remember when our Anzacs ascended the slopes of Gallipoli in 1915, that could have been, from the Turkish point of view, a Muslim-Christian war, because the Ottoman Empire was still in business, and that's who our Anzacs attacked, and they were ruled by a sultan who doubled up as the Muslim caliph. So, of course, we didn't see it like we were attacking a Muslim entity or we're having a Muslim-Christian war. I'm sure the Anzacs didn't see it like that, but the Turks probably did. However, having said that, after Mustafa Kemal Ataturk took control of Turkey and made it, first of all, put the Ottoman Empire to bed, so to speak, actually buried it, started the Turkish Republic, and it was so radically different to the Ottoman Empire. It was secular, Western-leading, incredibly progressive in the, the positive sense of that word. And I dare say, just when you read Ataturk's message to the mothers of the Anzacs that died, it was so conciliatory, so gracious. Uh, basically, your sons are lying in the soil of a friendly country. Your sons are now our sons. That doesn't sound like somebody who's holding a grudge. Part of the reason I believe he did that is because Ataturk repudiated the Ottomans and their legacy and basically called them usurpers. So, of course, he, as far as he's concerned, they all were liberated when the Turkish Empire fell. And so, yeah, there's no holding of grudges there. But can I just say in the Middle East, memories can be long and strong, although even with something like the Crusades, I've been told, you know, you know, the Crusades are still a sore point and so many things like that. But I actually believe the Crusades, which were in the Middle Ages, we're talking about, Neil, I think they became a sore point only in the last century and only when, well, when the British came in and the French came in and, you know, after the First World War and so on and so forth. So, yeah, even with long, strong memories, life does go on, and you do need to work and feed your families, and it's only when you have nothing else to do or when you want a nice distraction from domestic problems that you bring up memories of this injustice or that slight or that defeat or so on and so forth. So those are my initial thoughts to your question. And listeners might like to take some of those thoughts a little further. We'll open our talkback line on 1-800-316-316. 
uh, when we're talking about the possibility of a Muslim-Christian war, a war between the cross and the crescent, uh, important questions that will be asked and uh, great insights from you, I might add, Camille. But let's talk about Turkey in Bible prophecy uh, because we don't want to miss the mark when it comes to some of the things that God has already prophesied into the future through his uh, mouthpiece, those prophets. Uh, What about Turkey in Bible prophecy? How important is Turkey when it comes to things that happen in last days, the end times? Well, if you asked me that question maybe two or three years ago, I would have shrugged my shoulders and said, well, I'm not sure what role, if any, Turkey has in Bible prophecy. What I might have said two or three years ago, is that it could have had a minor role in uh, what you call it Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 30 and 39, but that was pretty much it. However, now, I have been reading some scholars, and I believe they are scholars, who are offering a thesis that Turkey has a very prominent role to play in the last days, that Turkey... Uh, and we don't, and by the way, obviously in the Bible, the name Turkey is not there. <laughs> that is, that it, it's known by other names, and, but there, it's the place names that are important. And part of the thesis here, when me, me, many Christians have been taught, and myself included, to look for an Antichrist out of Europe, basically a fair-haired, blue-eyed uh, European Antichrist. But one of the arguments is, when you look at the place names in the last days, they're not European names. They are names from the Middle East, including Turkey. So one thesis is this, and I know it's going to stir up a little bit of uh, interest, is that the king of the north in Daniel could also be from Turkey. Because the king of the north in Daniel is synonymous with the Antichrist figure that we know of in the New Testament. I'm not saying for sure, but I'm saying something worth exploring. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Our special guest this hour is Dr. Camille Majdali, who leads Teach All Nations, preparing for the Understanding the Times tour that kicks off next month. We're speaking to Camille today from the United States, where it's late afternoon and uh, enjoying our conversation about a very important topic and really around the idea of a war between the cross and the crescent which has been suggested by the Turkish president. Uh, Camille let's just get a little bit deeper into how we understand events that might happen in Turkey today and in Europe and if there is potential for a war between the cross and the crescent because I often think that as a a pillar, a, a central navigating beacon when we understand biblical prophecy, uh, we're looking at the nation of Israel. So I wonder whether you've got some thoughts on the relationship that Turkey has with Israel and things that have been developing there. Uh, your thoughts? Right. Well, Israel and Turkey have had an interesting relationship in that they both have been bilateral for, for many years. In other words, they've had exchange of ambassadors. They have flights, many, when I say many, they could have, what, half a dozen flights between Istanbul and Tel Aviv daily. Israeli citizens 
have been allowed to visit Turkey without a visa even. This is rather interesting when you consider that the relationship between the two countries was very frozen for about, say, six years from 2010 and onward with the incident with the Mavi Marmara ship that was trying to break the Gaza siege and or, and basically, I think nine or ten Turkish nationals were killed, including one was a dual citizen with the United States. And so there was a very deep freeze in Turkish and Israeli relationship. Then about two years ago, two and a half maybe, President Erdogan made a statement coming out of Saudi Arabia, rather incredible, and he said Turkey and Israel need each other. And so they patched it up as much as they could. The ambassadors returned to Ankara and Tel Aviv, respectively, and business continued on. But, of course, of late, whenever it comes to the issue of Gaza and the Palestinians, as this has happened, Erdogan just becomes rather very intemperate, and he'll he'll make rather strong statements that are against Israel. I, I can't remember exactly what they are, but they're very, very strong hostile states, is what you would say to your enemy, is, is the nature of the statements. And he does make all kinds of statements, as, as we will see, but the flights between Tel Aviv and Istanbul continue, the bilateral trade continues, maybe not as many Israelis come to visit as in times gone by because they don't like the unfriendly atmosphere, but yeah, at this point, Turkey and Israel need each other, but that could change. And if it does change, I dare say, Neil, the balance of power in the Middle East will change as well. I imagine, Camille, when you discuss this idea of the uh, the challenging situation between Israel and the Palestinians, and one of the, it would appear to be, one of the goals of Palestinian uprising against Israel is to raise the emotions of those neighbouring Islamic states that surround Israel. So uh, when there is uh, the sort of conflict that you see between the Palestinians and the Israelis, uh, clearly if you are President Erdogan in Turkey, uh, you have to take the side of the Palestinians and it would raise religious fervour every time there is some form of uprising. What are your thoughts on, on just the significance of what happens between the Palestinians and the Israelis? Well, you would think normally that if there is an incident like with Gaza, that the whole Arab and Muslim Middle East would be in an uproar. I say that because, of course, Turkey is not an Arab country, but it's a Sunni Muslim country. Then there is Iran. It is a Shia Muslim country, but they're not Arab either. But both Turkey and Iran are part of the Middle East. You would think that the Arabs, the Turks, and the Iranians would all be in an uproar. But as it seems, and I I can't say 100% for sure, but the the biggest reactions are coming really from the Turks and the Iranians, who are not Arabs, and less so from the Arab countries. Because what people may not realize is that Israel has been quietly courting the Arab countries, the Sunni Arab countries, because they have a mutual enemy in Iran. And Israel is getting some pretty good cooperation. All It's all quiet, it's all under the table, but the enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of thing, as the saying goes. So it's interesting, I don't believe those countries are making anywhere near the same amount of noise about trouble with Israel and Gaza 
or Israel and Hamas, as are the Turks and the Iranians. So in the Middle East, as people will learn, it can be complicated. I understand it because it's partially because of my heritage and also because it's one of my specialties. But, yeah, try to explain this to the average intelligent person, and, yeah, it gets very deep very quickly. When we come to biblical prophecy, Camille, and you mentioned that, you know, just a few years ago there was only a light association with Turkey and some of those end times prophecies related to Israel. Uh, You mentioned, though, that uh, as you are able to interpret Gog and uh, of Magog uh, as being either Russia or Turkey, there is some significance, as I understand it, from Ezekiel chapter 38 and 39, uh, which talks about the land of Magog, uh, where, in fact, Magog, Gog of Magog invades Israel. Uh, for those who are, are interested in biblical prophecy and almost making timelines as to say, oh, what is supposed to be happening here in the last days, uh, this idea that Turkey will one day invade or lead an invasion against Israel, what are your thoughts about that type of biblical prophecy? Okay, sure. There, there are a couple things. One is the Antichrist figure, and many Bible-believing Christians have looked to Europe for that one. And then it comes to Gog and Magog. Gog is the actual, how should we say, antagonist and opponent, and Magog is where he's from. He's from the land of Gog. And normally Russia is nominated for that. This new school of thought is combining the two in one. In other words, Turkey can provide Antichrist, and Turkey can provide Gog, which is something that most people would not consider, and I'm not saying it is correct myself, but what I do believe is when it comes to these issues, we need to, how should we say, go carefully with the text, look at the place names, look at the the context and all this, and it really will begin to fall into place, or at least give us a, a hook to hang our hat on, until the Lord shows us some more. Because with prophecy, we're given a lot of information, but we're not necessarily given all the information. We've got many pieces of the puzzle, and we need to wait as things transpire for those missing pieces to come. So I, that's how I see it. It's like a crossword puzzle. A lot, of, a lot of it's already coming into shape, but there's more to wait for. And can I just remind our listeners, prophecy is not given either to scare you or to alarm you. On the contrary, the Scripture is clear. It's given to both edify us as well as to comfort us, which is a whole lot different to the normal perspective that we're given. Just a few minutes out from news, if we talk about uh, the idea of Turkey, uh, end times, biblical prophecy, uh, I imagine that when people talk about President Erdogan and the formation of a new caliphate, uh, going back to pre-World War I days, the Ottoman Empire, the caliphate, uh, is this move that people talk about, uh, President Erdogan wanting a new caliphate, uh, Camille, is that something that is just being read into the situation or is there evidence that you're aware of that, yes, this is what his plan is? All right, it's it's all early days, but there seems to be circumstantial evidence that there is talk in that direction. By the way, the new school of thought 
on prophecy is we talk about normally a revived Roman Empire. Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar's statue, legs of iron, feet of iron and clay. That is the last world empire before the Lord returns. Traditionally, that has been called Rome. Now the school of thought is to consider that it may actually be not Rome at all, that the uh, belly and thigh of bronze is Greco-Roman, that's Greece and Rome combined together, and the legs of iron could actually be a revived Ottoman Empire. In addition, the Mahdi, which is a figure not mentioned in the Quran, but mentioned in Hadith, and subscribed to by Sunnis and Shia, maybe not all of them, that he fits the bill very well to the, uh, to the Antichrist figure. They do have a few things in common, uh, many things in common, actually. It's something to consider. But again, it's early days for me, so I'm not pounding the gavel and saying, this is it. Interestingly, though, this makes very, very uh, significant fodder in your preparation as you're planning the Understanding the Times tour, because as we mentioned, uh, the title of the message that you'll be bringing to Australian audiences kicking off next month and uh, for two months and longer, you'll be on the Understanding the Times tour around Australia, the Trump Declaration, Jerusalem, Jihad, and the coming of Jesus. Uh, these are the sorts of things that are going on in the world uh, that actually uh, make uh, the message that you'll bring very important, Camille. Well, it's certainly very topical, and I'm, I want to assure my listeners you will not have a dull moment. This is very gripping and very exciting information. When we talk about Turkey and the rise of Turkish influence, uh, there's this understanding of what you give a terminology to called a trans-Turkish highway. Uh, what is all that all about? All right. It's something that I've not actually <laughs> read in anyone's books. It's something I've just simply observed. For that First of all, people need to understand that the Turks are not originally from Turkey. They're from Central Asia, all the way up to the borders of Xinjiang in China or East Turkestan, and the Turks migrated westward to Asia Minor, which is now what we call Turkey, about a thousand years ago. And probably around that time, these shamanistic Turks converted to Islam. So th those are two very significant events in the life of the Turks. But Central Asia is related to the Turks by language and by blood. And, of course, uh, there is the Ottoman Empire that spread westward as well as southward. The Ottoman Empire occupied most of North Africa, virtually all of the Middle East, and Southeast Europe. So places like Albania, Kosovo, Bosnia have large Muslim majorities in Europe, and they are somehow connected to the Turks because they were once the imperial masters under the Ottomans. Turkey could, and I think maybe, maybe quietly forming what I call a Turkish Commonwealth, not unlike the Commonwealth that Britain has also formed because of the, again, bloodlines or imperial connections or what have you. Now, there's nothing menacing about a Turkish Commonwealth from the borders of China in the east all the way to the Balkan Peninsula and Europe in the west. The only thing is if Turkey departs from the legacy 
of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, which has been a very potent legacy for nearly 100 years, and decides to go in a more fundamentalist or religious fashion, and it's well-connected to these other countries, it could change the dynamic very, very much. It's just something to watch for the time being. And listeners might have a comment on that particular point as well. Uh, we're opening our talkback lines 1-800-316-316. You might like to join in our conversation. You also might like to uh, post a question or a comment on our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Camille, let's take a call. Sean is on the Gold Coast in Queensland. Hello, Sean. Welcome along. Good morning, Neil. Good morning, Dr. Camille. Great to hear from you, Sean. What are your thoughts? Uh, I I rang the other day when you had Bill Salas and Bill Crone on, and and I looked back and read some stuff they said, and I find that it was plausible about Psalm 83. And I also spoke about um, Walid Shabut and how he uh, explains that the Mahadi, which is what we describe the Antichrist as, uh, and the Muslims describe them as the saviour, the return of Jesus. Just I wanted to see Dr. Camille's uh, comments on that and also uh, the, the lion cubs of Tarsus, which is an indication of the you know the United Kingdom um, colonies. Okay, uh, did you catch that, Camille? Uh, let's get a thought uh, on uh, some okay. of Sean's comments. Yeah, I've caught some of it. I'm not sure all of it. I'll... I'll address Sean as best as I can. The, uh, there's, he, he, Sean has brought up several interesting issues, but one of the things is the, uh, the, the thing of the Mahdi, uh, who is very much a messianic figure. But let me make it clear, Islam, like Christendom, is not monolithic. It's not they all believe the same thing and march to the same drum. There is many uh, variations here or there. And as I said earlier, uh, my understanding is the doctrine of the Mahdi, though it's shared by Sunni and Shia, not everyone agrees with it or believes in it, and it's not found in the Quran. The Quran doesn't speak about a Mahdi. These are from the, the traditions called the Hadiths. And so the, the point being that there, the, there may be some very significant parallels between the Antichrist figure and the Mahdi. It's something we're called to watch on. I actually believe God doesn't give us all the puzzle pieces at once. He gives us enough to get us headed in a certain direction, but he really wants his church to be watching and praying. Because somehow if we think we know it all and we've unraveled every riddle, we would probably be less spiritually vigilant than if we didn't have it the way we do have it, and that is we have a lot to go on but we need to watch and pray so we get the signals right, and that ultimately what we should be watching for is the return of Jesus and those signs that are given in Scripture to point in that direction. And of course, even prior to his return, there will be times of refreshing coming from the presence of the Lord, these divine, shall we call them, revival visitations. So we, we, if anything, prophecies should make us more like watchmen on the walls rather than people who are like Rip Van Winkle sleeping through 
all these important events. Uh, Sean from the Gold Coast, just uh, there was one other element of what Sean was saying uh, with a reference to the UK and I think even including Australia in the idea of young lions. Uh, Camille, uh, any thoughts around that? And I know that was from a different conversation that you weren't a part of, but uh, have you heard that terminology in reference to uh, the idea of the UK and perhaps even uh, what we might term as uh, our Commonwealth of Nations? Okay, to be perfectly honest, I've never heard the term, so it would be not wise for me to comment. But I can just say that uh, with the United Kingdom and the Commonwealth, like everything else, uh, there is something very special in it, something we need to pray about. Uh, The United Kingdom has been a world leader. Even in its state now, it still has leadership and I just encourage people to pray for it. But to be honest, that term I don't know. Sean from the Gold Coast, thank you so much for your call. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You might like to join in our conversation. Uh, Camille, when we talk about a Commonwealth of Nations that might be led by uh, or aligned with Turkey, uh, somehow or other it you can't help but bring into focus here the idea that while uh, the modern nation of Turkey isn't mentioned in the Bible, if there was a Commonwealth nations uh, that actually did spread across uh, those areas that you were talking about from China down to the Balkans, uh, then this idea of a, a revival of the Assyrian Empire really sounds very plausible and very uh, very uh, timely. Uh, what are your thoughts about the Assyrian Empire that we might understand from the Bible and the way things look today? All right, from the description the Bible gives of the Assyrian Empire, and that's not counting the archaeological evidence, it was a very, very cruel and barbaric and militaristic empire. It would not be an exaggeration to say they ruled with a rod of iron, and their human rights abuses were unspeakable. Just go to the British Museum, one of the few places in London that is free, (laughs) and you can see for yourself the carved reliefs in the museum from the Assyrian Empire and what they did to people, prison population, captured opponents, and so on, is, is, is horrible. Perhaps that explains in part why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh to warn them of the coming judgment. He, he didn't want to go. Now, I'm not sure it was so much because he was afraid of the Assyrians. It's more like he didn't like them and felt they deserved richly the judgment that would come upon him. But isn't it interesting? They did what no prophet in Israel had, and that's wholesale repentance of a whole community. So that that's the happy ending there in Jonah. Whether it, it's the Assyrian Empire or whether it is the Ottoman Empire, both of them have been very, very rough and in their manhandling of people, very abusive in some cases. Assyria, in my opinion, maybe more so from what I could tell. But either way, we could be seeing not the revival of a European-based empire in the last days, but of a Middle Eastern-based empire, because with all the instability the region has had, it's ripe for strong leadership, uh, and that is probably coming down the road. 
Camille, take us to some of the essence of what is important when we look at biblical prophecy and describing things the the way we are today about what's happening in uh, Turkey, uh, what's happening in Europe. You mentioned something very, very important, I think, just a few minutes back when you said a part of what is so important when you're actually looking at biblical prophecy is to have context here about the return of Jesus Christ. So when we look at biblical prophecy, we're looking with a a motivation here. What is the motive of the heart that needs to be really soundly in place when you are, in fact, doing some exploration of biblical prophecy and looking at world events and seeing whether those things actually do line up? What are your thoughts? All right. Well, thanks for that question, Neil. It's, It's a great question. I believe, first of all, that the return of Jesus or our meeting with Jesus, because everyone's going to see Jesus very soon, one way or the other, that should be our number one priority. It's not a form of escapism, it's a fulfillment of a longing. The centerpiece of all Bible prophetic teaching is the coming of Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and when he comes, he will establish his kingdom. That's what we pray in the Lord's Prayer every single time, that your kingdom come, and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Everything should be funneled to that very worthwhile goal. Having said that, Bible prophecy is meant to also be an incentive for things like evangelism, holy living, discipleship, because the fact is we want to be ready to meet the King. And as I said, one way or the other, we're going to see him soon. And to be unready when he comes will be to put it mildly, more than just an embarrassment. We want to be ready. We want to be bearing fruit in every season. We want to grow in the knowledge of God. Prophecy is wonderful for helping to inspire and spawn that kind of response from people. So my my thing is this. Look at prophecy all revolving around Jesus, because it's about him anyway, and his return, and his kingdom, and then prepare your life spiritually and practically towards that end. People that do that have nothing to worry about. They will not face the future with dread. They will be future ready. And so that's my encouragement for our listeners, to take it in that heart. It's not just to be speculative and alarmist. It's actually to be preparing for a kingdom which is on its way. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson. A biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Well, great to come around a topic like the one we've been talking about today and the threat of a war between the cross and the crescent. And uh, certainly a topic like that captures your imagination in significant ways and especially if you have a deeper understanding about biblical prophecy and the trends that are going on around the world. Well, Dr. Camille Magdaly is preparing for the Understanding the Times tour that kicks off next month. In fact, I think it starts on the 19th of August and for two months he'll be travelling extensively around Australia. Camille, is this the third or the fourth year you've done this Understanding the Times tour? Because, uh, you know, there's a well-worn path in some some cities and towns that uh, you're treading. Uh, how many times is this now? This is the fourth annual tour. Okay, and this one that's coming up is going to kick off in Melbourne. 
19th of August. Yeah. And uh, have you got a general idea of which direction you're doing from Victoria? You're heading north, obviously, or south? Okay, sure. The general itinerary is starting off in Victoria, which is, of course, where I'm from, and then going uh, westward to South Australia, York Peninsula, and Adelaide, then to WA, mostly in the in Perth in the south uh, western corner of the state, and then from there I go up to Sydney, and then basically the month of October is pretty much all of Queensland except a little brief visit into northern New South Wales. But other than that, October is Queensland. Okay, and look, I'm looking forward to once again being with you on part of the early legs of the tour. And in fact, uh, for Victorian listeners, uh, for those who are listening in places like the small country town of Orbost and in Bansdale and in Melbourne, uh, I'm going to look forward to the privilege of being with Camille on that particular leg of the Understanding the Times tour. As we say, it kicks off on the 19th of August and there's going to be a couple of opportunities there where We'll be broadcasting live uh, in Melbourne uh, as part of the Understanding the Times tour. Now, the title of the message that you're bringing, Camille, the Trump Declaration, Jerusalem, Jihad, and the Coming of Jesus. Uh, that covers a lot of different areas there, and you'll be drawing all of those uh, various points that are happening with trends in the world right now all together into one message. Well, sure. My, my message really begins with the fact that U.S. President Donald Trump moved the United States Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, and he did so very quickly, and I might just say that I had the chance to see that embassy just last month. Uh, what is so amazing is I'm leading a tour of Australians in June, last month, and the Australians, the Aussies, they said, can we see the embassy? Now, I mean, that took me totally off guard. Like, what would Australians want to see the U.S. Embassy? Well, of course, it's not just any U.S. Embassy. It's the U.S. Embassy that just opened in Jerusalem, despite all the, both fanfare and all the, let's put it this way, wailing and gnashing of teeth that also happened as well. So I'm going to start with that. Just the, what, what's the big deal? What's the big deal about the embassy? But more importantly, what's the big deal about Jerusalem? Why does it get a disproportionate amount of international attention. And I know that people will enjoy hearing the answer to that because it's, it's very biblical and it really makes sense. We talk about the issue of jihad because jihad doesn't just affect non-Muslims, it even affects Muslim people too. And the fact is that jihad, especially jihadists, I'm, I'm talking about not necessarily mainstream Muslims, jihadists do have a goal and that is they want a caliphate, and they want Jerusalem as the capital of the caliphate. And in fact, once Jerusalem comes into their hands, then that will actually provide momentum to conquer more and more territory for, for their cause. And then, of course, just a few things to note about the coming of Jesus, some things we should keep in mind. And yes, it may be a while that many people have heard about the coming of Jesus, but if you come to our meeting, you'll hear about it, and I believe you'll be very, very encouraged in the process. 
And just to recap something important that you mentioned a little earlier, when we talk about these sorts of things in relation to biblical prophecy, the idea that there may be fear and trembling that comes when you think about things that may be ahead, and your encouragement that biblical prophecy is not about causing fear, but actually bringing hope and excitement about the future. Just recap just quickly for us here, Camille, as we approach biblical prophecy our attitude towards it all right we i've actually listed in several forums the the benefits of biblical prophecy and that biblical prophecy is healthy for you and for all of us and one thing second peter chapter one i believe it's verse uh, 19 it says we have a more sure word of prophecy and you would do well to take heed as a light shining in a dark place. I often take that verse and say that Bible prophecy is the brightest light we have on this planet till Jesus, the light of the world, returns. To me, we need more light, not less, and prophecy shines that light. But as I've also highlighted throughout this interview, Neil, it is a good thing to incentivize evangelism when you hear prophecy, good thing to learn about personal holiness. It's a good thing to learn when you want to be comforted and edified. And of course, it helps affirm Christ. It helps affirm the Bible, because when prophecy is fulfilled, then it makes the credibility of both Christ and the Bible all the more unassailable. It, it is very, very, very important for our, not just knowledge of God and His ways, but even in practical sense, preparing for the future, because people who believe in Bible prophecy, I believe, live different and better lives than if they thought nothing is going to change at all and it'll be the same old routine. So to me, uh, while it's not all about prophecy, if you understand the Times Tour, we will have a good, good examination of it, along with current events and practical exhortation for victorious Christian living. Well, Dr. Camille Majdali leads Teach All Nations. There is a website, tan.org.au. You'll also be able to subscribe to Camille's regular newsletter. Uh, he also leads tours to Israel. And, of course, the Understanding the Times tour kicks off on the 19th of August in Melbourne. You'll be able to get dates there on the Vision website, vision.org.au. Uh, Camille, great getting your insights again. Thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with listeners today on 2020. Pleasure, Neil. Thank you for the opportunity. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.